welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at pub quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Uh, you know, we're a podcast that teaches things about people and things and events. And, uh, you know, I feel like I've done a disservice so yeah. far in the th- um, in the three years we've been doing this. <laughs> which is nightmarish to think about that we've been doing. We've been spending three years every two weeks, sometimes more, uh, just <laughs> writing about stuff that we are interested or not interested in and and yelling at each other in a microphone. <laughs> and people listen to us, which is co- consistently On like purpose. insane to me. <laughs> On purpose. Like purposefully and like putting work and effort into not it. Not just like, oh, um, you're you're driving through Kansas and we're the only radio station and you're like forced <laughs> to listen to us like, for like, for well, two hundred and eighty miles. It's either this or oppressive silence. So I guess I'm listening to the misinfo pod girls again. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that is not the case. I hope we are not your last resort. Um but uh I feel like I've done a disservice because this event was huge in uh, like U.S. history and geological history, and we have not touched on this, not in any like real significant way. All right. So my episode today is about the 1980 Mount St. Helens eruption. So no, we weren't alive then either. No, we were not alive then. It was you know years until Julie and I. Many- were- Many years until Many we were Many years alive. until we were born. <laughs> we Just, are in our <laughs> mid-twenties. <laughs> so, we're you know. Very youthful. Yeah. We say, uh, what's a CD or whatever? <laughs> I don't know anything. Like, I couldn't even pretend to be a teenager because I have no idea when technology is like. Get on t- like, TikTok. Yeah, on the TikTok. <clears throat> you know, on the TikTok. So. 1980 Mount St. Helens eruption um, has a lot of parallels to what's going on in the world today, but uh, it's an interesting story. So to to start with, for our non-U.S. friends and non-West Coast friends, you know, I didn't know the details about this when I started researching it. But uh, Mount St. Helens, which is known as uh, Lawetlatla to the indigenous Cowlitz people and Luwit or uh, Luwalaklau to the Klickitat, um, is an active stratovolcano located in Skamania County, Washington, in the Pacific Northwest region of the United States. I apologize to the Washingtonians if I pronounced Skamania County or Skamania County incorrectly. I'm sure I will get an email about this. Um, <clears throat> it is 50 miles or 80 kilometers northeast of Portland, Oregon, and 96 miles or 154 kilometers south of Seattle, Washington. So to get a sense of where Mount St. Helens is, if you're thinking of both Washington State and Oregon mm-hmm. as roughly like squarish, rectangularish in shape, with Washington in the north and Oregon just below it, mm-hmm. uh, Mount St. Helens is in the lower left quadrant of Washington State near the border of Oregon. Okay, and she's roughly halfway between Portland and uh, Portland, Oregon, and Olympia, Washington, which is the Washington State capital. Okay. Um, Also relevant, uh, northeast of Mount St. Helens is what's called Spirit Lake. Um, And there's a bunch of little rivers and creeks in that area just due to like the geology of the area. But almost directly north of the mountain is the North Fork Tootle River. The Tootle River? Tootle or Tootle, T-O-U-T-L-E, Tootle River. So um, also Mount St. Helens takes its English name from the British diplomat Lord St. Helens, who was a friend of explorer George Vancouver, who made a survey of the area in the late 18th century. Uh, the volcano is located in the Cascade Range and is part of the Cascade Volcanic Arc, which is a segment of the Pacific Ring of Fire that includes over 160 active volcanoes. And for the record, before the explosion, Mount St. Helens stood at 9,680 feet high. So, every, so so they knew it was part of the ring of the ring of yes. fire. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So um they knew it was part of the ring of fire. It had experienced some activity throughout recorded history, but it it remained dormant basically from its last period of activity in the 1840s and 1850s. Mm-hmm. So by 1980 it had been more than 100 years before there was any like really significant activity that includes just like ash like little burps and like any kind of flow or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So 
at this point, people were pretty complacent, thinking nothing's going to happen anytime soon. It's fine. Like, it's a dormant volcano for all intents and purposes. Mm -hmm. Until we get to the spring of 1980. Okay. So there were several small earthquakes beginning on March 15th of that year, indicating that magma may have begun moving below the volcano. Also, just as an FYI, um, we talked about uh, natural disasters on episode 61, which was called Here I Am, Rock You Like a Hurricane. I talked a little bit about that, uh, about volcanoes in that episode. So if you want to refresh your memory about the basics of what's in a volcano, you know, check that out. Episode 61. It's very good. Thank you. Um, So on March 20th at 3.45 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, which everything will be in PST, uh, a shallow magnitude 4.2 earthquake centered below the volcano's north flank signaled the volcano's return from 123 years of hibernation. A gradually building earthquake swarm saturated area seismographs and started to climax at about noon on March 25th, reaching peak levels in the next two days, including an earthquake registering 5.1 on the Richter scale. A total of 174 shocks of magnitude 2.6 or greater were recorded during those two days. That's a lot. Yeah. So geologists in that area are like, this is no, not a great sign. <clears throat> Initially, there was no direct sign of eruption, um, but small earthquake-induced avalanches of snow and ice were reported from aerial observations. So, th- you know, this mountain is shaking and, you know, stuff is falling off. It's not, it's not nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, at 12.36 p.m. on March 27th, uh, phreatic eruptions, which are explosions of steam caused by magma suddenly heating groundwater. So that's like a quick like spurt of like ash and uh, steam. Okay. Um, ejected and smashed rock from within the old summit crater, uh, eva- excavating a new crater 250 feet wide Oof. and sending an ash column about 7,000 feet into the air. So. Yikes. Yeah. Not great. So by this date, a long eastward trending fracture system had also developed across the summit area. So there's cracks forming in the summit. This was followed by more earthquake swarms and a series of steam explosions that sent ash even higher above their vent. And most of this ash fell between 3 and 12 miles from its vent, but some was carried 150 miles south to Bend, Oregon, or 285 miles east to Spokane, Washington. So the ash went pretty far. And those people were like, what the... Right? (laughs) Like, what is happening here? So then a second new crater and a blue flame were observed on March 29th. If I know anything about flames, Mm -hmm. it's that any color other than orange is bad. It's not great. It's not great. It's not great. So (laughs) the flame was visibly emitted from both craters and was probably created by burning gases, as you have implied. Mm -hmm. Um. And also, uh, I didn't know this, but static electricity generated from ash clouds rolling down the volcano sent out lightning bolts that were up to two miles long. Oh, my gosh. Ash being so dry, like as it's like moving through the atmosphere, it Mm -hmm. creates static electricity. So the mountain must have looked like the entrance to hell at this point. Like something is shit is going down. down. So 93 separate outbursts were recorded on March 30th, and increasingly strong tremors were first detected on April 1st, alarming geologists and prompting Governor Dixie Lee Ray to declare a state of emergency on April 3rd. So Governor Ray issued an executive order on April 30th, creating a red zone around the volcano. So anyone caught in this zone without a pass faced a $500 fine, um, which was equivalent to about $1,600 today, Mm -hmm. or six months in jail. Um, and this precluded many cabin owners from visiting their property. Okay. Mm-hmm. So a United States Geological Survey team, hereby known as the USGS, uh, determined in the last week of April that a 1.5 mile diameter or 2.4 kilometer section of St. Helens North Face was displaced outward by at least 270 feet. So this means that it is literally growing a bulge, like a bubble underground that is visible to the naked eye. So for the rest of April and early May, this bulge grew by five to six feet per day. And by mid-May, it extended more than 400 feet north. So this has been going on since March. Yes, since early, mid-March. There's been like signs that something's going down at Mount St. Uh Mm-hmm. Um, so as this bulge moved northward, so 
you have to imagine it like so you're looking if you're looking like top down from the mountain mm-hmm. um north of the mountain is this like bubble and it's shifting basically down the mountain right Oof. it's shifting like it's it's moving at a at a significant rate um as it moved northward, the area behind it sank. Okay. So as like as like a bubble moves, you yeah. can see like the like depression. A, like a bubble in your pizza crust. Exactly. Like a <laughs> bubble in your pizza crust. <laughs> Only not nearly as, uh, much more dangerous actually. Um, so this is called, uh, a dr- this complex drop down block is called a Graben, G-R-A-B-E-N. Okay. So geologists announced on April 30th that sliding of the bulge area was the greatest immediate danger and that a landslide might spark an eruption. So the thing is, is that geologists realize that there's all of this pressure building up. And so it's creating this bubble. And because of gravity and just the way that uh, that um, volcano works, the bubble is sliding down mm-hmm. mountain, creating this depression behind it. And so this depression behind it releases pressure. Okay. Right? Like, mm-hmm. it's like pulling the, the pressure away. Um, the magma is exposed in that bubble because the rock covering is, like, okay. being pushed forward. And by releasing the pressure, like popping a pimple, that's when an eruption happens. <laughs> so the eruption would happen behind this bubble that's moving. So, uh, because the intruding, and I'll explain this, <laughs> because the intruding magma remained below ground and was not directly visible, it's called a cryptodome. Which Ooh. is in contrast to a true lava dome exposed at the surface, which okay. you might you may have seen pictures of that in like Hawaiian Hawaii. volcanoes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so on May seventh, eruptions similar to those in March and April resumed, and over the next days, the bulge approached its maximum size. So it's getting like bigger and bigger. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, and there there had been people living near this, right? And yes. then the, then mm-hmm. when the governor was like, everybody out. Yeah, everybody out or everybody, like, stay away. Yeah. Right. Um, So, however, um, well, we'll talk about that. A total of about 10,000 earthquakes were recorded before the May 18th event, with most concentrated in a small zone, less than 1.6 miles directly below the bulge. So, um, visible, like, eruptions, these little, like little gas leaks and, like, ash clouds and things, Mm -hmm. they stopped on May 16th. Okay. And... During this time between like mid March to about mid mid May, people were coming to like watch this. Yeah. So after they stopped like showing up on May sixteenth, people like didn't care anymore. They're like, okay, party's over, like it's done. So uh, the number of spectators in the area were reduced Mm -hmm. by this time. Uh, however, mounting public pressure then forced officials to allow 50 carloads of property owners to enter the danger zone on Saturday, May 17th, to gather whatever property they could carry. Oh, so they were like, oh, well, the stuff stopped on May 16th. Okay, yeah. you can go. You can go in. It was actually it was more like people were like, this is stupid. Like, uh, this is not the thing that everyone is calling it. Like, it's not a big deal. This isn't a big deal at all. I should be able to go get my stuff. Yeah. Like, at least let me go get my stuff. Uh, Because, obviously, this is... And also, this is starting to become, like, the spring tourist season. People want to go up to their second homes at the base of Mount St. Helens. Mm -hmm. Like, there's, you know, lodges and kayaking and also in this area there's a lot of logging okay so there are a lot of logging companies who want to get back up there because this is like we're getting to the point where we need to start logging i see and like meeting our quotas and stuff and because nothing has happened like why are you preventing us from doing our jobs and or like living our lives you know very interesting history Uh, Mm -hmm. repeating itself yeah exactly yeah so um Again, another trip was scheduled for 10 a.m. the next day. And because that was Sunday, more than 300 loggers who would normally be working in the area were not there. So by the time of the climactic eruption, magma intruding into the volcano had forced the north flank outward nearly 500 feet or 150 meters and heated the volcano's groundwater system, causing many steam-driven explosions. Uh, So things are, like, not great. (laughs) Yeah? (laughs) Yeah, things aren't great. So... 
May 18th is when things go down. But first, we're going to talk about two very different men who were witnesses and ultimately died in this event. Okay. Okay. So the first was David Johnston. He was a 30-year-old USGS geologist who was at an observation post six miles north of the mountain called Coldwater 2 when the eruption hit. Um, Given the increasing seismic and volcanic activity, Johnston and the other volcanologists working for the USGS and its Vancouver branch prepared to observe any impending eruption. And this was in Vancouver, Washington. Mm -hmm. There are two Vancouvers. There's Vancouver, Canada, and there's Vancouver, Washington. Uh, Vancouver, Washington is a city just north of Portland on the north side of the Columbia River, which is the border between the states. Mm -hmm. So Vancouver is south of Mount St. Helens, significantly south. Um, at the time, geologist Don Swanson and others placed reflectors on and around the growing domes and established the Coldwater 1 and 2 observation posts to use laser ranging to measure how the distances to these reflectors changed over time as the domes deformed. So they were the ones like tracking the, the height of mm-hmm. this big bulge and other bulges that had like occurred. Um, famous for telling reporters that being on the mountain was like, quote, standing next to a dynamite keg and the fuse is lit. Johnston had been among the first volcanologists at the volcano when eruptive signs appeared and shortly after was named the head of volcanic gas monitoring. Uh, so through a careful analyst, uh, Johnston strongly believed that scientists needed to take the risk for themselves in order to prevent civilian deaths and therefore chose to take part in dangerous on-site monitoring. Okay. Uh, He and several other volcanologists prevented people from being near the volcano during the few months of pre-eruptive activity and successfully fought pressure to reopen the area. Since Governor Lee had issued a state of emergency on April 3rd, and by mid-May, activities seemed to laymen to have been dying down, as I mentioned before. Um, Their work kept the death toll at a few tens of individuals instead of the thousands who possibly could have been killed had the region not been sealed off. Wow. So Johnston supported what's known as the lateral blast theory. Um, he believed that the explosive eruption would be ejected sideways out of the volcano and not upward, as okay. you would imagine. So this is common now, thanks to Mount St. Helens and thanks to a lot of research done by the USGS and other volcanologists around the world. But at the time, volcanologists thought that because of the way that vol- volcanoes are structured and the way that magma works and all of that stuff, that nine times out of 10, a volcano is going to explode from the top, from the summit. Like a fifth grade science experiment. Exactly, like a fifth grade science experiment. Um, And he also believed that the eruption would originate from the bulge. He thought this wasn't a symptom. It was like the... That was where it was going to happen. That was where it was going to happen, yep. Like you said, like a pimple. Like a pimple, yeah. Um, I considered that being the topic of my, like the name of this episode, but I feel like that was... You want to confuse everybody. No, I didn't want to confuse anyone. Yeah. (laughs) So because of this, he was more aware than most of the threat of a north-directed eruption. And also, to make matters worse, he wasn't even supposed to be up there on May 18th. Oh. Uh, Swanson, the other geologist, wanted to meet with a graduate student about to head back to Germany, so he asked Dave if he would take his place for the day. Uh, that Saturday, the day before the eruption took place, Johnston ascended the mountain and went on patrol of the volcano with another geologist named Carolyn Dreiger. And at the time, tremors shook the mountain. And uh, Dreiger was supposed to camp out on one of the ridges overlooking the volcano that night. But Johnston told her to head home and said that he would stay on the volcano alone. He was like, you know what? I got this. Just go home. Um, so while at Coldwater 2, Johnston was to observe the volcano for any further signs of an eruption. And just prior to his departure at 7 p.m. on the evening of May 17th, 13 and a half hours before the eruption, graduate student Harry Glicken took the famous photograph of Johnston sitting by the observation post trailer with a notebook on his lap smiling. And it's a great photo. It's the last mm-hmm. photograph ever taken of him. And it's very, he's, you know, he's a handsome, blonde, 70s looking guy. He's got a beautiful beard. He was only 30 years old. He's like sitting on a folding chair in what looks like like a rock, rocky like region. Mm-hmm. And he's got a notebook on his lap and the sun is shining. And he's just like, it looks like Harry was just like, hey, Dave. And he turned his head and smiled and he snapped the picture. Aww. It's very sad. We'll post that picture. It's very beautiful. So the second guy we're going to talk about is a man named Harry R. Truman. <gasps> No relation to your boy, Harry Harry S. S. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So 
Harry R. Truman was the 83-year-old owner and caretaker of Mount St. Helens Lodge at Spirit Lake near the foot of the mountain, and he came to fame as a folk hero in the months preceding the volcano's eruption after he refused to leave his home despite evacuation orders. Okay. Between March and May of that year, he gained international fame for refusing to leave the mountain and gave tons of interviews to reporters who flooded the area looking to talk to the eccentric lone holdout. Uh, He was sure that the danger was exaggerated. I don't have any idea whether it will blow, he said, but I don't believe it to the point that I'm going to pack up. Uh, He displayed little concern about the volcano and his situation. He said, if the mountain goes, I'm going with it. This area is heavily timbered. Spirit Lake is in between me and the mountain, and the mountain is a mile away. The mountain ain't going to hurt me. It's a mile away. It's a mile away. Oh, my gosh. Please. So law enforcement officials were, uh, the word is incensed by his refusal to evacuate because media representatives kept entering the restricted zone near the volcano Mm. to interview him. Okay. Uh, endangering themselves in the process, obviously. Uh, Still, he remained steadfast. He said, you couldn't pull me out with a mule team. That mountain's part of Truman and Truman's part of the mountain. He told reporters that he was knocked from his bed by precursor earthquakes, so he responded by moving his mattress to the basement. He claimed to wear spurs to bed to cope with the earthquakes while he slept. Uh, He scoffed at the public's concern for his safety, responding to scientists' claim about the threat of the volcano that, quote, the mountain has shot its wad and it hasn't hurt my place a bit, but those goddamn geologists with their hair down to their butts wouldn't pay no attention to old Truman. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) He he really, apparently, he was like such a character, but he apparently really hated hippies and also the elderly for some reason. Like, he hated old people. It's like, you're an old man. (laughs) Sorry, Truman. Um. Afterwards, Truman's niece, Shirley Rosen, said that her uncle thought he could escape the volcano but was not expecting the lateral eruption. She stated that her sister took him a bottle of bourbon whiskey to persuade him to evacuate, but he was too afraid to drink alcohol at the time because he was unaware whether the shaking was coming from his body or the earthquakes. So uh, Harry had his own set of issues. Mm -hmm. But anyway, back to the eruption. So... As May 18th dawned, Mount St. Helens' activity did not show any change from the pattern of the preceding month. The rate of bulge movement, sulfur dioxide emission, and ground temperature readings did not reveal any changes indicating a catastrophic eruption. As of 6 a.m., Dave Johnson's measurements did not indicate any unusual activity, so it seemed like it was going to be a real quiet day. At 8.32 a.m., a magnitude 5.1 earthquake centered directly below the north slope triggered that part of the volcano to slide approximately 7 to 20 seconds after the shock. So it happened so quick. Like that. The landslide, which is the largest in recorded history, traveled at 110 to 155 miles per hour and moved across Spirit Lake's west arm. So (sighs) it triggered a landslide. Mm Mm-hmm. Part of it hit a 1,150-foot-high ridge about six miles north. Some of the slides spilled over the ridge, but most of it moved 13 miles down the North Fork Toodle River, filling its valley up to 600 feet deep with avalanche debris. Oh, wow. Yeah. An area of about 24 square miles was covered, and the total volume of the deposit was about 0.7 cubic miles. So it spread far and wide. Um, scientists were able later to reconstruct the motion of the landslide from a series of rapid photographs by Gary Rosenquist, who was camping 11 miles away from the blast. Rosenquist, his party, and his photographs survived because the blast was deflected by local topography one mile short of his location. So just the way the land was, Mm -hmm. they were spared, which is amazing. So most of Mount St. Helens' former north side became a rubble deposit 17 miles long, averaging 150 feet thick. The landslide temporarily displaced the waters of Spirit Lake to to the ridge north of the lake in a giant wave approximately 600 feet high. Oh, my God. So it, like, it created, like, this, you know, like, you throw a rock into a bathtub, Uh like, it displaced this water. And this, in turn, created a 290-foot avalanche of debris consisting of the returning waters and thousands of uprooted trees and stumps. So it splashed out and then came back. (sighs) Um, some of these remained intact with roots, but most had been sheared off at the stump seconds earlier by the blast of superheated volcanic gas and ash that had immediately followed and overtook the initial landslide. So the debris was transported along with the water as it had returned to its basin, raising the surface level of Spirit Lake by 200 feet. <laughs> yeah. 
So this landslide exposed the magma in St. Helens's neck to much lower pressure, causing the gas-charged partially molten rock and high-pressure steam above it to explode a few seconds after the landslide started. So like like I said before, the bulge, as mm-hmm. it was being displaced, re- released that pressure. So when the landslide happened, the bulge collapsed, created this landslide, mm-hmm. and then because all that magma was suddenly exposed, it just blew. <laughs> oh my gosh. So basically, it looked like the side of the mountain completely blew out. Okay. Um, So before being struck by a series of flows that at their fastest would have taken less than a minute to reach his position, Johnston managed to radio his USGS co-workers with the message, Vancouver, Vancouver, this is it. Seconds later, the signal from the radio went silent and all contact with the geologist was lost. (sighs) Boy. Yeah. Explosions burst through the trailing part of the landslide, blasting rock debris northward. The resulting blast directed the pyroclastic flow laterally. So pyroclastic flow is basically a fast-moving current of hot gas and volcanic matter, and that collectively is known as tephra. So not just Mm -hmm. lava, but a bunch of stuff, gas Mm -hmm. and rock and all that stuff. Um, And this moves away from a volcano at high speed, so that's Mm -hmm. called pyroclastic flow. Um, So it consisted of very hot volcanic gases, ash, and pumice formed from new lava, as well as pulverized old rock, which hugged the ground. So that was like rolling along at the bottom. Initially moving at approximately 220 miles per hour, the blast quickly accelerated to around 670 miles per hour, and it may have briefly passed the speed of sound. How is that possible? It's just this pressure, like, it's like, popping a pimple like if your pimple was enormous <laughs> okay and had a lot of pressure behind it that's just like wow this, yeah acceleration that happens um it's insane uh initially there was some debate as to whether johnston had survived records soon showed a radio message from fellow eruption victim and amateur radio operator gary martin located near the Coldwater Peak and farther north of Johnston's position, reporting his sighting of the eruption enveloping the Coldwater 2 observation post. As the blast overwhelmed Johnston's post, Martin declared solemnly that the camp and the car sitting to his south were covered. It's going to get me too, he said, before his radio went silent. It's, It's so rough. So... There was also a photographer named Robert Emerson Landsberg, who also died in the eruption. On the morning of May 18th, he was within a few miles of the summit. So when the mountain erupted, Landsberg took photos of the rapidly approaching ash cloud. And before he was engulfed by the pyroclastic flow, he rewound the film back into its case, put the camera into his backpack, and then laid on top of the backpack in an attempt to protect its contents. Oh, my God. So 17 days later, Landsberg's body was found buried in the ash with his backpack underneath, and the film was developed and has provided geologists with valuable documentation (gasps) of the historic eruption. So he knew in that moment, like, well, I I can't get away from this. I might as well record it. Oh, my God. And then try and protect the film. Isn't that so dark? It's crazy. Now, Harry Truman, for his part, was alone in his lodge with his 16 cats. 16 cats. <laughs> I don't think you mentioned that before. <laughs> no, I didn't. Uh, I didn't mention the cats, but um, he is presumed to have died in the eruption. Reason being is because they never found his body. It is likely that he died of heat shock in less than a second, too quickly to register pain before his body was vaporized. Because he was so close. He was oh so close. God. He was right in the path. Like mm-hmm. his lodge and everything was right in the path of this explosion. Mm-hmm. So the landslide and the pyroclastic flow traveling atop the landslide engulfed the Spirit Lake area almost simultaneously, destroying the lake and burying the site of his lodge under 150 feet of volcanic landslide debris. Uh, yeah. Authorities never found his remains. Um, his cats are also presumed to have died with him. Uh, He considered them family and mentioned them in almost all of his public statements. Mm. Friends hoped that Truman might have survived as he had claimed to have provisioned an abandoned mine shaft with food and liquor in case of an eruption. Um, But they think the lack of immediate warning of the oncoming eruption may have prevented him from escaping to the shaft before the pyroclastic flow reached his lodge, which was less than a minute after it began. Like he would not have been able to get out that way. His sister Geraldine said that she found it hard to accept the reality of his death. I don't think he made it, but I thought if they would let me fly over and see for myself that Harry's lodge is gone, then maybe I'd believe it for sure, she said. 
His possessions were auctioned off as keepsakes to admirers in September of 1980. Ooh, geez. Yeah, I think that was like his family Mm -hmm. did that to help pay for his memorial service or that kind of thing. Um, So back to the explosion. Pyroclastic flow material passed over the moving avalanche and spread outwards. So this landslide is happening. And then as the explosion happens, it overtake it basically overtakes the landslide. (laughs) So it not only overtakes the landslide, but also accelerates the landslide and becomes like it's just insult to injury at this point. I mean, in in a very small way. But um, this devastated a fan shaped area 23 miles across by 19 miles long. In total, about 230 square miles or 600 uh, square kilometers of forest was knocked down, and extreme heat killed trees miles beyond the blowdown zone. It was like the photos show that huge, like mature, giant trees were sheared off like they were grass. Wow. Like cut off almost at the same level of their trunks. It's out of control. So at its vent, the lateral blast probably didn't last longer than 30 seconds. It was just like a quick boom. Mm-hmm. But the northward radiating and expanding blast cloud continued for about another minute. Um, and superheated flow material flashed water in Spirit Lake and North Fork Tootle River to steam, creating a larger secondary explosion that was heard as far away as British Columbia, Montana, Idaho, and Northern California. <laughs> Yet, and this is super interesting, many areas closer to the eruption, such as Portland, for example, did not hear the blast at all. And this was called uh, a quiet zone. Okay. It extended radially a few tens of miles from the volcano, and it was created by the complex response of the eruption sound waves to differences in temperature, an air motion of the atmospheric layers, and to a lesser extent, local topography. So... And also, like, this idea that it went faster than the speed of sound, there was this weird silent zone closer to the volcano than farther, which is really weird. Um, Cran Kilpatrick, who was an employee of the uh, United States Forest Service, recalled, quote, there was no sound to it, not a sound. It was like a silent movie and we were all in it. That's terrifying. That's terrifying. The The earth is terrifying. You know what? Everything. I'm just scared of everything. I'm scared of it all. <laughs> So the huge ensuing ash cloud sent skyward from St. Helens's northern foot was visible throughout the quiet zone, and the near supersonic lateral blast loaded with volcanic debris caused devastation as far as 19 miles from the volcano, and it released energy equal to 24 megatons of TNT. <laughs> so by the time this pyroclastic flow hit its first human victims, it was still as hot as 680 degrees Fahrenheit or 360 degrees Celsius oh and filled with suffocating gas and flying debris, <laughs> which is why they think that Harry was yeah. vaporized. Most of the 57 people known to have died in the day's eruption succumbed to asphyxiation while several died from burns. Uh, as mentioned before, volcanologist David A. Johnston was one of the killed, as was Reed Blackburn, who was a National Geographic photographer who was taking pictures of the mountain mm-hmm. at the time. So as the avalanche and initial pyroclastic flow were still advancing, a huge ash column grew to a height of 12 miles above the expanding crater in less than 10 minutes and spread tephra into the stratosphere for 10 straight hours. Oh, my gosh. Near the volcano, the swirling ash particles in the atmosphere generated lightning, which in turn started many forest fires. So this is like, this is like the mouth of hell. Like this is <laughs> the worst possible thing. Um, and during during this time, parts of the mushroom-shaped ash cloud column collapsed. So because of that, that mm-hmm. there's that initial explosion, it comes up and then it's too heavy for the atmosphere. So it, it collapses back down the column. Okay. Um, and it fell back onto the earth. And this fallout mixed with magma, mud, and steam sent additional pyroclastic flows speeding down St. Helens' flanks. So it blew up and out, collapsed on itself, and then flowed back down oh the, gosh. the mountain. So later, slower flows came directly from the new north-facing crater and consisted of glowing pumice bombs and very hot pumiceous ash. So some of these hot flows covered ice or water, like which is on top of a mountain mm-hmm. um, and that flashed to steam creating craters up to 65 feet or 20 meters in diameter and sending ash as much as 6,500 feet into the air. So this just keeps like this, this like it's a cascade effect of just yeah. explosions, explosions, hot ash, horrible burning magma, rocks, trees. It's insane. So 
Strong high-altitude wind carried much of this material east-northeasterly from the volcano at an average speed of about 60 miles an hour or 100 kilometers per hour. By 9.45 a.m., which is just like a little more than an hour away, Mm -hmm. it had reached Yakima, Washington, which was 90 miles away. And by 11.45, it was over Spokane. So a total of four to five inches of ash fell on Yakima and areas as far east as Spokane were plunged into darkness by noon when visibility was reduced to 10 feet. Oh my God. And a half of inch of ash fell. So continuing eastward, St. Helens's ash fell into the western part of Yellowstone National Park by 10.15 p.m. and was seen on the ground in Denver, Colorado the next day. Uh, In time, ash fell from this eruption was reported as far away as Minnesota Mm -hmm. and Oklahoma and some of the ash drifted around the globe within about two weeks. Right. So it, it affected Everywhere. the atmosphere yeah. of the world, basically. So during the approximate nine hours of vigorous eruptive activity, about 540 million tons of ash fell over an area of more than 22,000 square miles. The total volume of the ash before its compaction by rainfall was about 0.3 cubic miles or 1.3 kilometers cubed. Oh, my God. Um, By about 5.30 p.m. on May 18th, the vertical ash column declined in stature, but less severe outbursts continued throughout the next several days. So there was still like explosions happening throughout the like basically the rest the rest of the week. The flow deposits were still at about 570 to 790 degrees Fahrenheit or 300 to 420 degrees Celsius two weeks after they erupted. (laughs) Secondary steam blast eruptions fed by this heat created pits on the northern part of the North Fork Toodle River, and these steam blast explosions continued sporadically for weeks or months after the emplacement of pyroclastic flows, and at least one occurred a year later on May 16, 1981. It's just, it's just insane. (laughs) So... The hot exploding material also broke apart and melted nearly all of the mountain's glaciers along with most of the overlying snow. As in many previous St. Helens eruptions, this created huge lahars. So a lahar is a volcanic mud flow um, and muddy floods that affected three of the four stream drainage systems on the mountain and which started to move as early as 8.50 a.m. <laughs> uh, lahars traveled as fast as 90 miles per hour while still high on the volcano, but progressively slowed to about three miles per hour on the flatter and wider parts of rivers. Uh, mud flows from the southern and eastern flanks had the consistency of wet concrete as they raced down Muddy River, Pine Creek, and Smith Creek to their confluence at the Lewis River. Uh, bridges were taken out at the mouth of Pine Creek and the head of Swift Reservoir, which rose 2.6 feet by noon to accommodate the nearly 18 million cubic yards of additional water, mud, and debris. I can't believe how fast everything was moving, too. Oh, yeah. It's it's astounding. Like, within an hour, all of this stuff was happening mm-hmm. and was, like, rushing toward civilization, basically. Um, glacier and snowmelt also mixed with tephra on the volcano's northeast slope to create a much larger lahars, and these mudflows traveled down the north and south forks of the Toodle River and joined at the confluence of the Toodle Forks and the Cowlitz River near Castle Rock, Washington, at 1 p.m. Ninety minutes after the eruption, the first mudflow had moved 27 miles upstream, where observers at Weyerhaeuser's Camp Baker saw a 12-foot-high wall of muddy water and debris pass. <laughs> so they're seeing this giant wave of just like mud and old trees and yeah. stuff just like pass by them. Kind of like Johnstown flood. Yes. Like the Johnstown flood. Exactly. Um, near the confluence of the Toodles North and South Farks at Silver Lake, a record flood stage of 23.5 feet or 7.2 meters was recorded. Ultimately, the May 18th, 1980 event was the most deadly and economically destructive volcanic eruption in the history of the contiguous United States. Approximately 57 people were killed directly from the blast and 200 houses, 47 bridges, 15 miles of railways, and 185 miles of highway were destroyed. Oh my gosh. Two people were killed indirectly in accidents that resulted from poor visibility and two more suffered fatal heart attacks from shoveling ash. Uh, U.S. President Jimmy Carter surveyed the damage at the time and said it looked more desolate than a moonscape. How would you even... Okay, now you have to shovel five inches of of ash, ash. off of your yeah. car. Mm-hmm. Where are you even going to put that? Where are you going to yeah. do with that? It's not like snow, which ultimately melts. Yeah, 
It's just like, now there's ash. I mean, it gets compacted after it rains, but that's still like, now you have wet a layer ash. of ash. Yeah, wet wow. ash. On May 23rd, a film crew was dropped by helicopter on Mount St. Helens to document the destruction. However, their compasses spun in circles and they quickly became lost. Uh, <laughs> a, s- <laughs> a second eruption occurred the next day, but the crew survived and they were rescued two days after that. And um, they never then, went back. To- then they never did that again. No. They were like, forget this. This is not worth the money. Um, more than 4 billion board feet of timber was damaged or destroyed mainly by the lateral blast. Wow. Um, although at least 25% of the destroyed timber was salvaged after September of 1980, uh, downwind of the volcano in areas of thick ash accumulation, many agricultural crops such as wheat, apples, potatoes, and alfalfa were destroyed. And as many as 1500 elk and 5,000 deer were killed Mm. and an estimated 12 million Chinook and coho salmon fingerlings died when their hatcheries were destroyed. Um, in total, Mount St. Helens released 24 megatons of thermal energy, seven of which were a direct result of the blast. This is equivalent to 1,600 times the size of the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. A um, couple of couple more things. Uh, there is a minor controversy in regard to the exact death toll. Okay. The figure most commonly cited is 57, mm-hmm. right? However, there are two points of dispute. The first point regards two officially listed victims, Paul Hyatt and Dale Thayer. They were reported missing after the explosion. In the aftermath, investigators were able to locate individuals named Paul Hyatt and Dale Thayer who were alive and well. Mm -hmm. However, they were unable to determine who reported Hyatt missing, and the person who was listed as reporting Thayer missing claimed that she was not the one who did it. Since the investigators could not thus verify that they were the same Hyatt and Thayer who were reported missing, the names remain listed among the presumed dead. So that's That's weird. weird. So the second point regards three missing people who are not officially listed as victims, Robert Ruffel, Stephen Whitsett, and Mark Melanson. Cowlitz County Emergency Services Management lists them as possibly missing, not on the official list. According to Melanson's brother in October 1983, Cowlitz County officials told his family that Melanson, quote, is believed a victim of the May 18th, 1980 eruption, and that after years of searching, the family eventually decided that he's buried in the ash. Mm. Um, So taking these two points of dispute into consideration, the direct death toll could be as low as 55 or as high as 60. And when combined with the four indirect victims mentioned earlier, those numbers range from 59 to 64. So they don't even know exactly how many people died. Mm -hmm. So a refined estimate of 1.1 billion or uh, adjusted to 2018, 3.4 billion was determined in a study by the International Trade Commission at the request of the United States Congress. A supplemental appropriation of 951 million for disaster relief was voted by Congress, of which the largest share went to the Small Business Administration, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or as we know them, FEMA. FEMA. Um, the area is now known as the Mount St. Helens National Volcanic Monument. On the second anniversary of the eruption, the USGS office in Vancouver, which had been permanently established following the 1980 eruption, was renamed the David A. Johnston Cascades Volcano Observatory in his memory. Uh, the observatory is one of the most responsible for monitoring Mount St. Helens and helped to predict all of the volcano's eruptions between 1980 and 1985. In a 2005 open day, the lobby area of the CVO included a display and painting commemorating Dave Johnston. Following the eruption, the area where the Coldwater 2 observation post had been was sectioned off, uh, but eventually an observatory was built in the area in Johnston's name and was opened in 1997. Uh, located just over five miles from the north flank of Mount St. Helens, the Johnston Ridge Observatory, or the JRO, allows the public to admire the open crater, new activity, and creations of the 1980 eruption, including an extensive basalt field. Part of the Mount St. Helens National Volcanic Monument, the JRO was constructed for $10.5 million, equipped with monitoring equipment, and visited by thousands of tourists annually. Um, it also includes tours, a theater, and an exhibit hall. And also Minor Planet 8663 David Johnston, discovered by Eleanor Helen in 1991, is named in his <laughs> honor. His mother stated in an interview shortly after the eruption, quote, not many people get to do what they really want to do in this world, but our son did. He would tell us he may never get rich, but he was doing what he wanted. He wanted to be near if the eruption came. In a phone call on Mother's Day, he told us it's a site very few geologists get to see. 
And we're going to end with a quote from Will Durant, who is an American writer, historian, and philosopher. He wrote The Story of Civilization, which is like an 11 volume (laughs) history of like humanity. He said, civilization exists by geological consent, subject to change without notice. Oh, boy. Yeah. So now if you look, so it used to be like top down, you looked at it and it looked like, you know, a mountain basically. Mm -hmm. Now it looks like C-shaped, like it has this huge crater. And uh, we'll post some pictures of like before and after the explosion, but it's, it's, (laughs) it's amazing. It's amazing. So it wasn't just, there's a volcano. Oh no. Oh no. It's out the top, like a volcano. Yeah. All of a sudden, like yeah. that, it was, they had an idea that something was happening, mm-hmm. earthquake, earthquake, bulge, measure. Yeah. Don't go there. Yep. There's stuff happening. So yep. that's that's really interesting. Yeah. It's, it's amazing that, you know, you think of like volcanic eruptions. I mean, and I, Steve and I had watched Dante speak like a couple of months ago, and I was telling him about this when I was doing the research and he was like, oh, like Dante's Peak. I was like, yeah, well, I'm pretty sure Dante's Peak was like based on (laughs) the Mount St. Helens explosion. But yeah, I mean, there were people who were like, guys, this isn't normal dormant volcano activity or like sleepy volcanic activity. Like bad things are happening. We have the data, like everyone stay away. But because it didn't explode as soon as they said, hey guys, things are happening. People were like, mm. it's not that big of a deal. Like, I don't see it exploding. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look like it's going to explode. There were so many people who were like, we haven't had an explosion in over 100 years. What? Who's to say? What are the odds that it would happen now? Like, that's ridiculous. That was in like the 1850s. They had no idea what they were doing at the time. So it's just very interesting that, uh, I mean, blessedly, Governor Dixie Lee was like, nope, we're going to keep the red zone. Mm-hmm. And also there weren't more people on the mountain at the time just because it was on a Sunday. Yeah. Like there would have been way more people in like the blowdown zone if it was a weekday mm-hmm. where people were like working. So wow, it's wild. Do and is it still a, an active volcano? It is. I, I think it's like still considered like an active mm-hmm. volcano because there's still there have been like earthquakes that have happened between like 2008 and 2000 I mean I'm sorry 2004 and 2008 there were some there were a couple of like smaller eruptions mm-hmm. like steam blasts and that kind of thing and now because there's a history of it people were like <laughs> yeah <laughs> like they were very very like okay we're going to keep an eye on this and so they're still continually the Vancouver um uh, observation point and the Johnston observation point like they're still keeping an eye on things and doing measurements on a regular basis mm-hmm. so there's that. But yeah. Ugh. Crazy. Disasters. All right. So my quiz today, I was very proud of this. My quiz today is called Rock Flow, a quiz on rap rock bands and collaborations. Question number one. One of the first, if not the first, rap and rock collab was in 1985 when Rum DMC hopped on an already classic Aerosmith track. What is the name of the song whose music video featured Run, DMC, Jam Master J, and the boys from Boston literally breaking down a wall between them? Question number two. This new metal song by the rap rock band Korn was featured on the group's 1998 studio album Follow the Leader. It was released as a single in 1999, and since then it has been re-released over 10 times. The music video was the biggest hit, though, featuring both animated and live sequences that followed the path of the bullet, intercut with a live shot of the band performing in front of a backlit wall littered with bullet holes. What is this song? Question number three. In 2001, Del the Funky Homo Sabian collaborated on the smash hit Clint Eastwood with this British pop supergroup created by Damon Albarn, formerly of Blur. What is the name of this band who would go on to feature Del in at least one other single and perform with him on stage? Question number four. We all know Diddy, a.k.a. P. Diddy, a.k.a. Puff Daddy, is a big fan of sampling classic tracks to rap over, cementing his long and influential career in music. In 1998, he and producer Tom Morello got Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page to recreate his classic guitar part from Cashmere for the song Come With Me. 
This track was created especially for the soundtrack of a blockbuster movie starring Matthew Broderick and an extremely large Ambilorhynchus Christatus. What is this movie? Question number five. Speaking of Tom Morello, he is a founding member of this rap rock group formed in 1991 with vocalists Zach De La Rocha and Tim Comerford and drummer Brad Wilk. They released four albums before disbanding in 2000, including Evil Empire, The Battle of Los Angeles, and Renegades. Who is this angry band who hates industry? Question number six. An unlikely frontman to a metal band, depending on who you talk to, this already established rapper started the metal band Body Count in 1990, immediately courting controversy with the song Cop Killer. Ironic nowadays, since this rapper is famous for playing a cop. Who is he? Question number seven. One of my favorite collaborations in the past few years is Chance the Rapper on the May I Have This Dance remix, a song by an eccentric musician who, in 2004, officially changed his name from Abe Mori Katz Milder to something more appropriate to what he calls his solo project. What is the name of this project? Question number eight. There's no way you don't remember this rap rock band whose 2000 single Butterfly was everywhere that summer, which reached number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart and helped their debut album, The Gift of Game, sell over 1.5 million units. Who is this band, begun by a couple of white guys who call themselves Epic and Shifty Shellshock? Question number nine. In 2004, the biggest rap rock band and the biggest rapper at the time released a mashup album that shook the entire music industry. The album featured three songs from the rock band's albums Meteora and four from Hybrid Theory. From the rapper's catalog, it features three songs from The Black Album, one from Volume 3 Life and Times of S. Carter, one from Volume 2 Hard Knock Life, and one from The Blueprint. Can you name the band, the rapper, and for an extra point, the album? And finally, question number 10. What does the name of Christian Rap Metals Group's P.O.D. stand for? One, plain old data. Two, post-operative discharge. Three, payable on death. Or four, path of daggers. We'll give you a minute to think about it. Enjoy some biggie. And we'll be back with your answers. Yeah. This album is dedicated to all the teachers that told me I never amount to nothing. To all the people that lived above the buildings that I was hustling in front that called the police on me when I was just trying to make some money to feed my daughter. To all my people who were struggling, you know what I'm saying? It's all good, baby, baby. It was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine. Salt and pepper and heavy D up in the limousine. Hanging pictures on my wall. Every Saturday, rap attack, Mr. Magic Molly Mall. I let my tape rock till my tape pop. Smoking weed and bamboo, sipping on private stock. Way back when I had the red and black lumberjack with the hat to match. Remember rapping Duke? The hard, the hard. You never thought that hip hop would take it this far. Now I'm in the limelight because I'm on tight. Time to get paid, blow up like the world trade. Born sinner, the opposite of a winner. Remember when I used to eat sardines for dinner? Peace to Raw G, Brucey B, Chick and Pink. Funk Master Flex, Love Bug Star Ski. I'm blowing up like you thought I would. Call a crib, same number, same. So these questions are very good. Thank you. But I'm not the target audience. For this. <laughs> I know, I know. You know how many times? Do you know how many times I was writing these questions and I was like, "Ah, oh, Josh is gonna know this." <laughs> okay, for this episode, I'm uh-huh. gonna use Engineer Josh as my lifeline. Okay, great. I love that because yeah, I I really think he's gonna be a big help for this. Because <laughs> oh, so we were watching recently. We were watching like the celebrity who wants to be a millionaire, and oh, they yeah? let their person answer like the first 10 questions with them they just sit they sit 10 feet behind them and they are like blah 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 i don't know the answer to the question do you know the answer to the question and the person behind you is like yep it's this so so that's this is we're inspired by this we're doing celebrity millionaire edition rules (laughs) (laughs) i'm i'm perfectly comfortable with that okay great okay here we go Question number one. One of the first, if not the first, rap and rock collabs was in 1985 when Run DMC hopped on an already classic Aerosmith track. What is the name of the song whose music video featured Run, DMC, and Jam Master J and the boys from Boston literally breaking down a wall between them? I do know this one. Okay. It's 
Walk This Way. Yes, correct. Um, the cover charted higher on the Billboard Hot 100 than Aerosmith's original version. It peaked at number four. It became one of the best-known songs in both hip-hop and rock, and Run DMC was the first hip-hop act to have their music videos broadcast on MTV, appear on American Bandstand, be on the cover of Rolling Stone, perform at Live Aid, and be nominated for a Grammy Award. Wow. So, extremely influential band. All right. Question number two. This new metal song by the rap rock band Korn was featured on the group's 1998 studio album, Follow the Leader. It was released as a single in 1999, and since then it has been re-released over 10 times. The music video was the biggest hit, though, featuring both animated and live sequences that follow the path of a bullet, intercut with live shot of the band performing in front of a backlit wall littered with bullet holes. What is this song? Okay, I can only name one corn song, but okay. I don't know if that works with this. So I'm going to call my lifeline. <laughs> well, what what is your guess first? Okay, the only corn song I can name is Freak on a Leash. You are correct. Ah! It is Freak on a Leash. <laughs> <laughs> See, you're doing great. Um, the video won awards for Best Editing and Best Rock Video at the 1999 MTV Video Music Awards and later received the Grammy Award for Best Short Form Music Video in 2000. It became the ninth video that was retired from Total Request Live on May 11th, 1999. Because they were just so sick of it. The yeah. Retiring yeah, the videos from TR was just like, ugh. Yeah, no one wants to see this anymore. Okay. Question number three. In 2001, Del the Funky Homo Sapien collaborated on the smash hit Clint Eastwood with this British pop supergroup created by Damon Albarn, formerly of Blur. What is the name of this band who would go on to feature Del in at least one other single and perform with him on stage? Okay, so the Clint Eastwood song is by Gorillaz. And that is, is the, the answer. answer. <laughs> <laughs> that is the answer. <laughs> Good job. Um, Dell has released a dozen albums, three mixtapes, and collaborated with a bunch of other bands. He is also uh, Ice Cube's cousin. Huh. So there you go. Uh, question number four. We all know Diddy, a.k.a. P. Diddy, a.k.a. Puff Daddy, is a big fan of sampling classic tracks to rap over, cementing his long and influential career in music. In 1998, he and producer Tom Morello got Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page to recreate his classic guitar part from Cashmere for the song Come With Me. This track was created especially for the soundtrack of a blockbuster movie starring Matthew Broderick and an extremely large Amblerinkus Christatus. What is this movie? Uh, Josh, you can answer this one. All right, I've been tapped in as a lifeline. And uh, mm -hmm. in a Slumdog Millionaire moment, I would say this is the first CD I ever bought, technically not first album, uh, you know, counting cassette tapes or whatever, mm. but that, that would be the soundtrack to the film Godzilla. You are correct. It is Godzilla. Yay. $20,000. Um, that Latin name is for a marine iguana by the by, by the by, which is what they think Godzilla looks a lot like. Um, throughout the 90s and 2000s, Diddy sampled tracks as both a producer and an artist from Mary J. Blige, Marvin Gaye, Barry White, Tears for Fears, James Brown, and many, many others. Question number five. Speaking of Tom Morello, he is a founding member of this rap rock group formed in 1991 with vocalists Zach De La Rocha and Tim Comerford and drummer Brad Wilk. They released four albums before disbanding in 2000, including Evil Empire, The Battle of Los Angeles and Renegades. Who is this angry band who hates industry? So uh, without that last line, I would have <laughs> no idea because I don't know who's in bands. Uh -huh. um, but this leads me to Rage Against the Machine. Correct. It is Rage Against the Machine. Um, FYI, Tom Morello went to Harvard and has a degree in political science. So he's an extremely smart man. Question number six. An unlikely frontman to a metal band, depending on who you talk to, this already established rapper started the metal band Body Count in 1990, immediately courting controversy with the song Cop Killer. Ironically, nowadays, since this rapper is famous for playing a cop. Who is he? Is this Ice-T? It <laughs> is Ice-T. Uh, Ice-T is a cop on Law & Order SVU. His interest in heavy metal stemmed from sharing a room with his cousin Earl, who was a fan of rock music and only listened to the local radio stations. 
Uh, Ice-T particularly enjoyed heavy metal, citing Edgar Winter, Led Zeppelin, and Black Sabbath as his favorite bands. So he's a, he's a renaissance man. Question number seven. One of my favorite collaborations in the past few years is Chance the Rapper on the May I Have This Dance remix, a song by an eccentric musician who, in 2004, officially changed his name from Abe Maury Katz Milder to something more appropriate to what he calls his solo project. What is the name of this project? I have no idea. This is funny because the other day we were we were just talking about something with like celebrities changing their names or something at some point because because we were talking about the great uh, the flower fight. Yeah, the great flower fight. We were saying there's no way his real name is Christian. Uh, yes, Griffith oh. Vanderyacht. <laughs> Christian Griffith <laughs> Griffith Vanderyacht. And I didn't say it, but I was going to say one of the ones that I was trying to look up, what was this guy's original name? Because his new name is so crazy. And mm-hmm. I, I'm very surprised Lauren found it. I could not find it last time I tried to look this up. Was uh, Francis Farewell Starlight of yes. Francis and the Lights. Correct. <sighs> Correct. The project is called Francis and the Lights. And again, as Josh so helpfully said, he changed his name officially to Francis Farewell Starlight. Uh, he often uses the Francis and the Lights name when crediting his solo work and contributions. He has said, quote, there are no members of Francis and the Lights. It is me and whomever else is involved, including you. Uh, also, the music <laughs> Wait, video. we're in Francis and the Lights? We are in Francis and the Lights, Julia. <laughs> Wow. We're in Francis and the Lights, so I can. How do I get some royalties out of this? I know. Where's Where's my money for May I Have This Dance? Um, have you ever watched the music video for May I Have This Dance with do, Chance yes, the Rapper? I do know this. I do. I have heard the song. I think I've seen the video. Yeah, the video is it rules. It's mm-hmm. so cool, um, and it's very like minimalist. Um, also, I discovered while like looking because I was like, oh, I love this music video and I watched it and I was looking at some of the comments on YouTube, which were m- mostly positive because how could you not like either of these people? But I think I like it, that song specifically and Francis and the, and the Lights like overall, because it reminds me of Peter Gabriel. It has like a very mm. distinctive Peter Gabriel Cynthia. vibe. Yeah. So stay tuned for that episode at some point in the future. <laughs> okay. Question number eight. There's no way you don't remember this rap rock band whose 2000 single Butterfly was everywhere that summer and it reached number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart and helped their debut album, The Gift of Game, sell over 1.5 million units. Who is this band begun by a couple of white guys who call themselves Epic and Shifty Shellshock? This is the point where when you were reading the questions that I was just like, I don't I don't know if I know <laughs> words anymore. I have no idea. You have no idea. Who did the song Butterfly? I don't know. It doesn't mean anything to me right now. Wow. Shifty Shellshock, infamously the front man for Crazy Town. Yes, it is Crazy Town. Uh, Shifty Shellshock, whose real name is Seth Binzer, appeared in the reality TV show Celebrity Rehab 1 and 2 and Sober House 1 and 2. He has had a lot of problems with addiction in the past many years. Um, but yeah, Butterfly, man. That song was, God, it was everywhere. And it's a really bad song. It's really bad. Okay. Question number nine. In 2004, the biggest rap rock band and the biggest rapper at the time released a mashup album that shook the entire music industry. The album featured three songs from the rock band's albums Meteora and four from Hybrid Theory. And from the rapper's catalog, it featured three songs from the Black Album, one from Volume 3, Life and Times of S. Carter, one from Volume 2, Hard Knock Life, and one from The Blueprint. Can you name the band, the rapper, and for an extra point, the album? I can name the rapper. <laughs> okay. Which is Jay-Z. Very good. Excellent. And yeah. Josh can name everything else. Yeah, I can name everything <laughs> else because our, our coaches at Orange Theory would play stuff off of this all the time. That, of course, this is Linkin Park mm-hmm. and Jay-Z present Collision Course. Exactly. Uh, the album was inspired by the Grey album by Danger Mouse, uh, which was a mashup album between Jay-Z and the Beatles. Um, also, I had this album. I downloaded it in 2004. There's only six songs on the album, Collision Course. And uh, 
there's a story in the uh, summer of 2004 on Father's Day. I was driving back from my job at Barnes Noble and I got into a, I T-boned an old man who pulled out in front of me. And at the time I was listening to their mashup of 99 Problems. And to this day, I cannot listen to that song without thinking of being hit by a car. <laughs> Like without hearing like explosions and the sound of twisting metal and all that stuff. I was fine. Like nothing happened. But like I hit the guy and the car like grazed off his car and I rolled into a median. And then I, because the airbag went off and like, by the way, being hit by an airbag is like being hit in the face with a burlap sack. Mm -hmm. Like it hurts so bad. And there's all that like, that like stuff that's in the puff. And I couldn't breathe. So I unbuckled myself once I stopped and I couldn't see and I opened up the door and I just pitched myself out like full body rolled out of the Mm -hmm. car so and people were like running at me from all different directions like oh my god are you okay and I realized later it must have been the most dramatic thing they have ever seen that this this woman is just like flopping out of a car (laughs) I must have looked dead it was awful I was fine everyone it was and so was the old man he only broke his wrist um because he had his hand up on the on the door so everyone was fine it was totally okay but yeah it really ruined my dad's father's day and Lincoln Park apparently and Lincoln Park for me yeah which is totally fine okay and finally question number 10 what does the name of Christian rap metals group P-O-D stand for. I knew I knew this one without okay. even without your multiple choice. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna recap yeah. them just one more time. One, plain old data. Two, post-operative discharge. Three, payable on death, or four, path of daggers. I I know this is, this is payable on death. Very good. Uh you may know P-O-D from the songs Alive and Youth of the Nation. Or you might not, unless uh, you didn't grow up in a weird evangelical environment like I did. <laughs> but I asked Steve and he was like, oh, yeah, I know P.O.D. So I guess they were mainstream enough where, you know, like it wasn't just me and like the weird new metal kids that I went to church with. That song Alive <laughs> was everywhere for yeah, a long time. Alive was everywhere for sure. So, yeah. So good job. Thank you, uh, Julia. And thank you, Engineer Josh. Thanks for, for letting for me have a lifeline. Nice job. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, definitely check out uh, May I Have This Dance by Chance the Rapper and Francis and the Lights. It's a beautiful song. Of it's which wonderful. we are all a part of. Of which we are all a part of. We're all a part of. <laughs> um, thanks so much for listening, you guys. Thanks so much for sticking with us this summer. We recorded this uh, all ahead of time. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, rate, review, and subscribe. Tell a friend. You know the gist. You know the, the yeah. deal. Thank you everyone for your support. Thank you for everybody mm-hmm. that's that sent us some some dollars through our tip jar. Yes. That's like Im- incredible. Thank you. Yeah, so kind. Thank you so much. Your your money could have gone a lot of places and it's very kind that you sent some to us. So, um yeah. And thanks so much for listening, guys. And we we'll, we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>